can turn to the book of Colossians. We will work our way verse by verse through Paul's letter to the church at Colossae starting this morning. And I was having a conversation with somebody, um, I don't know if it was yesterday, this past week, and we were talking about Colossians. And I made a comment about how this Sunday we were just going to do verses 1 and 2. And somebody said, oh, we're going to be in Colossians for a while, huh? And we kind of laughed. And I do think that we'll pick up steam. I have it mapped out right now into 10 sermons. So it'll probably, just because I know how I am, it'll probably end up being more like 15. Um, But uh, honestly, had I not told you that, you wouldn't have known. (laughs) And um, so we're just going to go verse by verse and work our way through it. And I I pray that it will be um, an encouragement to you. And I do want to double down a little bit on uh, just the announcement that Pastor Aaron shared about um, the passages of Scripture that each week we'll be putting in the bulletin. Um, and if you have ordered in the past, and maybe you have one from this year, I know a few people do, um, the, Word of Lime, the Word of Life Quiet Time, that's where we took the readings from. Um, and so you'll just notice each day, if you look at that little daily reading in your bulletin, it's like 10 or 12 verses. And so sometimes when you read that, it might seem a little bit like, well, it's kind of in the middle of a passage. It is. It's not designed to be exhaustive. Um, I was able to, I was having a conversation uh, again with some other folks this past week. And, and, you know, there is a level where I, I still believe people think when I say you should read your Bible, that's what I'm supposed to say because I'm the pastor. Um, but I cannot overstate the importance of knowing what God's word says. And if you claim to be a believer in Jesus, you need to know what God's word says. All right? I'm not saying that because I'm your pastor. I'm saying that because if you know the God of the universe or claim to, you need to know what he has communicated to us from him. You can't know him. You can't know what he's like. You can't know what he expects of you. You can't know right from wrong. You can't know your left hand from your right. Maybe you feel like that's a bit too extreme, but it's not. And so our goal is just to try to encourage people to read their Bibles. And I know sometimes um, having suggested verses to read goes a long ways in getting us into our Bibles. And so that's what this is meant for. So you know what? Read it as a family. Read it uh, by yourself in the morning before you go to work. Listen to it while you're driving down the road. Uh, whatever you need to do to take in God's word, I don't want to be cheesy and I don't want to be cliche. I'm not a fan of New Year's resolutions, but it is January 1st, so read your Bible. That's it. I'm done. Now to the letter to the Colossians. This is a letter written by, many of you probably know the Apostle Paul. Uh, This was written uh, many believe, along with three other letters written by him while he was imprisoned in Rome. We call them his prison epistles. Uh, this, this letter actually looks a lot like, structure-wise, uh, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, which is also one of the prison letters, right? Along with Philemon and Philippians. The, the letter to the church at Colossae is believed to be uh, one of Paul's earliest writings, the exception, we believe that the two earliest writings are his letters of First and Second Thessalonians to the church in Thessalonica. And one of the interesting things about this letter is, I'm, it's interesting to me, maybe not to you, is that Paul wrote this letter to a church that he did not plant. 
He is not responsible for the church that exists in Colossae existing. In fact, not only did Paul not plan it, Paul has never even, we believe, been to the church at Colossae. And yet he's writing a letter, as we're going to see in a few moments, as an authority. He's going to write it with an authoritative tone. Um, but it's really interesting. Never been there. Nonetheless, he's writing this letter based on reports that he has received from a man named Epaphras. Verses 6, 7, we're introduced to him as a fellow brother of, of Paul's. It's Epaphras who actually has planted the church in Colossae and who has brought the report of how the church is doing to Paul. And so Paul writes this letter to the brothers and sisters there. He's received an report, report from Epaphras that they're doing well that the church is, is, for all intents and purposes, functioning well. But there are some things that the church at Colossae is up against. And namely, there's this exterior pressure that exists from the, the various sects of society that want the church to behave in certain ways. And so literally what we have is some groups of people outside of the church seeking to influence how it is that those in the church should be living in Colossae. And so Paul is writing to them to encourage them, uh, to give them guidance as to how to navigate the societal pressures that the church there, that the body of believers in Colossae are facing. Paul's letter to the church here, uh, or excuse me, in Ephesus, you might recall, it's been a couple years, but we worked through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. It broke neatly into two halves. The first three chapters and then the second three chapters. And the first three chapters of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus was very succinct and clearly, this is theological instruction. He told the church at Ephesus, this is what you need to know. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6 in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, he said, these are the imperatives, the indicatives. This is what you do in light of what you now know. Well, the letter to the Colossians is structured in a similar way, but it's not as clear-cut. It's not as defined as it is in the letter to the Ephesians. Nonetheless, what you have throughout the first half are nuggets of what they need to know, and then in the second half, the ramifications of uh, what they do in light of the gospel truths that Paul has reinforced that they had previously been taught by a man named Epaphras. Right, and so you know, one of the things that you do, that one one of the the struggles sometimes, especially that I have, because I'm kind of an information nerd, and and what I mean by that is, if I'm not careful, I can get up here and just overload you with a bunch of information about the church in Colossae, right? Things that as we just read through the text, we may not uh, necessarily pick up in terms of the background and the culture and what was going on. And there are things that are nonetheless important. So I'm going to try to sprinkle some of those in. I've done that already. There'll be some more along the way. But, but I want us to understand what we hear and what we learn, some of the nuggets that we've already got, others that we'll pick up, in light of the larger scope of this letter to the church at Colossae, right? And so as Paul writes... And he teaches them some theological truths in the first part. As he makes his way through the second half, the reality of what they know or what Paul is reminding them that they know is that the gospel, the gospel truths are to be lived out under the freeing grace of Christ, not the bondage of the oppressive sects of people that are around them, right? 
And, and Paul is going to hammer this as he, as he works throughout this, that in Christ, there is freedom. You are free in Christ. But we must be mindful from the outset that Paul is not just simply writing a self-help manual for the church at Colossae, right? Try harder, do better, ignore the voices that, that you know, are, are pressuring you to be different than what Christ has, has called you to or what you learned from Epaphras. He's not just trying to be a cheerleader. And we need those. That's not bad or wrong, but that's not Paul's intention or goal at all in writing to the church at Colossae. We'll see the whole scope and tone of this letter is set for us in just the first two verses, right? Paul is writing with uh, an intention and a focus and an emphasis upon Jesus and pointing the believers in Colossae to obey Jesus and to follow the gospel truths that they've learned from Epaphras. And his message really is clear. There is no part, okay, this, this might be where the rubber meets the road, okay? And this is very applicable today for you and I. There is no part of the believer in Jesus Christ's life that is untouched by the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? There is no part of your life if you are in relationship with God by his grace through faith in Christ that is untouched by the gospel. And what that means is our lives are not compartmentalized. Well, this, this compartment here, uh, this compartment is affected by the God compartment. You know, things like going to church, being with church people, doing, you know, godly things. But then there's other parts, compartments of our lives oftentimes that we say or maybe we live as though they're not affected by the gospel. You know, how many of our lives look drastically different at school or at work than they do on Sunday mornings? You see, Paul is writing to the church at Colossae and he's communicating to them that they have been introduced and by faith believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes everything and permeates every area of their lives. It literally, and, that, and it's, it's interesting too. That's why as you work your way through Colossians, you get to this seemingly section of the scripture that's seemingly out of place where Paul just starts talking about their relationships. He literally touches on every relationship that would exist in a Roman household. And he talks about the implications of the gospel upon them. There is no area of your life and mine that is not affected by the gospel. Well, I have to do this. Well, this, I mean, at work, you know, I have expectations. I have a certain image that I have to uphold as the boss. You know, at school, I, I've got this, again, image that I have to uphold. You know, a lot of people at school, they make fun of Christianity. They make fun of kids who go to church and belong in youth groups. So I'm going to make sure that when I'm around those people, I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to, I don't want it to be too obvious that I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Paul is writing to the Colossians, and I want to say, especially at, at this juncture, I don't have any idea what the future holds for us, but the pressure that they faced is far greater than the pressure we face to live in light of the gospel, right? But Paul reminds them no area of their life is untouched by the gospel. But this, this doesn't mean that because the gospel is present in our area of our lives, that the Christian life is oppressed and restricted either. And that's the balance that Paul is going to strike with the Colossians, right? Because that's part of what they were dealing with. He says, church, your lives have been impacted and changed by the gospel, and no portion of your life is untouched. But that doesn't mean that you're bound strictly by rules and regulations. One of the things that we'll learn is that there was a group of Jewish people who were basically telling the Colossians, much like we've seen other places in the New Testament, that if the Colossian believers in Jesus were going to worship God, they first had to be Jews. They had to observe the law, right? And, um, and, and, and so Paul is writing to, to correct some of these things. It's not lived under a, 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 an umbrella of oppression or restriction, Rather, for the person who is in Christ, it's lived as a new creation that's liberated from the stringent rules and, and regulations of the culture and the varying cultures that surround, surrounded the church there in Colossae, whether that's the pagan culture or, in our context here, the Jewish culture. And so I want to begin our study of Paul's letter to the Colossian believers by examining just two verses um, the opening salutation of his letter to the Colossians. And we read this beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Let's pray as we consider the words of Paul this morning. Father, we're thankful to have your word, and we're thankful for the privilege to examine it. And uh, God, sometimes I, I know I can be guilty as I'm reading of just kind of glossing over things like an opening greeting. And uh, they seem oftentimes to be very standard and very routine. Um, but God, if we're honest, and as we look at your word this morning, I pray that we can understand a little bit better that there's a lot to be learned um, in light of that, that greeting and maybe why Paul says certain things or doesn't say certain things as he's introducing himself uh, to these believers at Colossae. And God, we thank you for uh, the report that Paul had received, that this church was doing well, that they had learned these gospel truths, and that their greatest desire, God, was to live them out. And that by and large, they were doing that. But God, we understand that there was some, some difficulty in doing so. And so God, as we look into your word today, and as we study your letter to the church at Colossae, we pray, God, you give us eyes to see. Um, there's not a direct correlation necessarily from what Paul wrote to the church at Colossae and us today, but there's always application that can be taken from your word. And so, God, we pray that you would encourage us today, God, that we would see your word perhaps afresh and anew this morning, that we might consider this opening greeting and that we might see the scope of what Paul is saying in preparation for the larger picture of the letter um, and God, that we might see that, that there are ramifications upon what was written uh, in our lives today. And so give us eyes to see and ears to hear. God, give us hearts that are willing to uh, be molded by the truth of your word. And God, I pray this morning that you would 
uh, just guide my lips, guide my speech. God, may only what you desire to be communicated today be communicated, and may you change our hearts and lives because of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, as, as has been mentioned, the letter to the Colossians <clears throat> is a rich theological letter. Upon God and all that has been accomplished through Christ, as well as the ramifications of that in the lives of the Colossians. <clears throat> in this opening salutation or greeting is no less a focus on the accomplishments of Christ in the lives of those who make up his church. And so I want us together to see how even just in a greeting, Paul sets his focus upon Christ and, and, and what Christ has done in his life and what Christ has done in the life of the church in Colossae. And so first thing we see is just Paul's focus on Christ in his own life. <clears throat> in short, what Christ has accomplished in his life or what, what Christ has done. And so Paul, as he begins, he identifies himself. This is very common. And then he, he refers to himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. This is verse one. And so there's a focus here upon his own life. An apostle is how Paul refers to himself. Uh, an apostle according to the will of God. Right? Perhaps you know this morning that an apostle was somebody in a general term who was sent or commissioned. And, and in order to be considered a legitimate apostle of Jesus Christ, you had to have seen the risen Jesus yourself. Okay? And, and, and so, number one, we can pause for just a second and say, and I had somebody ask recently, I don't even remember the context of the conversation, but they said, you know, do apostles exist today? No, they don't. Because the risen Jesus has ascended and he's gone. He's in the heaven, or at the right hand of God in heaven, right, set to return. And, um, and, and so what's interesting about Paul being an apostle, one who has seen Jesus firsthand, and one who is commissioned by Jesus... Notice Paul, as he refers to himself as an apostle, he says, according to the will of God. You might recall, if you're familiar with Paul, the apostle Paul's story, his commissioning was a little bit different than that of the rest of the apostles. The rest of the apostles, you might recall, Acts chapter 1, Matthew 28, these two uh, uh, events, they, they run together and they, they're painting the same picture for us where Christ is on the Mount of Olives with his disciples and he's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. And as he's preparing to do that, he commissions them. He sends them out. He says, I want you to go back, and I want you to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit, and then you will be my witnesses. Then you will be my disciples. So he's told them what he has for them to do. He has commissioned them to carry out a task. But was Paul on the Mount of Olives with the disciples? No. And then Jesus ascended to the Father. But if you have to see the risen Jesus to be an apostle or to be commissioned, well, how does Paul fit into this? Well, again, if you're familiar with the book of Acts and what transpires, Paul is a, he's a, a leader of one of the most stringent and strict religious uh, Jewish religious groups, the Sanhedrin. And he is on his way to a place called Damascus as he's preparing to arrest more Christians and take them back to Jerusalem. They might be tried for their crimes of following Jesus. And in Acts chapter 9, 
the event we call Paul on the road to Damascus takes place, right? And, and I don't want to belabor it this morning. If you don't know it, take a few minutes this afternoon. Go back, read Acts chapter 9. Paul's on his way. The clouds open up. A bright light shines. And Paul has this interaction with Jesus. And Jesus tells Paul, you know, in so many words, why are you persecuting me? And then he sends him into town. He blinds him. And then uh, a little bit later on, we see this interaction between Jesus and a man named Ananias. And Ananias is going to be sent by Jesus to get Paul uh, and to, 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 for, uh, to allow Paul to regain his sight. And then he tells Ananias, for I must show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. He's uh, my chosen instrument to go to the Gentiles. So you have this interaction that's taking place between Jesus and Paul on the road to Damascus. But as we read Paul's letters in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul refers to himself as one who is born out of undue time. And what the Apostle Paul is talking about is how his commissioning by Jesus and his authority as an apostle of Jesus came in a different time and setting than that of the other apostles. He was one born out of undue time. And then that's when we look at Acts chapter 9 and we see this event take place where Paul interacts with the risen Jesus and is commissioned by Jesus. And so Paul is declaring to this church he's never visited that he has been sent by Christ according to God's will to carry out God's will. And this is significant. And, and, you know, sometimes I think, again, we look into God's word and we hear, you know, the Apostle Paul. And we intrinsically, if we have a growing understanding of God's word, we understand the significance that comes with that. The Apostle Paul, right? The Apostle sent by God. But you got to remember, the church at Colossae who's receiving this letter, they don't know Paul. The truth is... We might say that to them, Paul was just another guy. He wasn't really of any great significance to them. And so when Paul writes, he doesn't write on his own authority. He didn't write and say, hey, listen up, this is Paul. And I'm in Rome being persecuted for my faith in Jesus. So you should hear what I have to say because I know what I'm talking about. No, he said, Paul, comma, an apostle, of Jesus Christ according to the will of God, period. It's actually not a period there because then he includes Timothy, period, for emphasis. What I have to say, church at Colossae, you need to hear, and it's not being spoke out of my own authority, but out of the authority of Jesus Christ the giver of the gospel that you, church in Colossae, are living according to. Paul establishes his dignity and his authority, having been commissioned by Christ, but understanding that it's really not his own authority. His authority comes from Christ. And this might seem obvious, might not seem like that big of a deal, but Paul is writing for the purpose, literally, of instructing the Colossians about gospel implications of their life. Well, who best suited to teach gospel implications than somebody who has firsthand been commissioned by Jesus? That's even, uh, I, I mean, that's, 
That's one step below Jesus himself commissioning you. And so he's writing of matters of of great significance. And he wants them to understand that he's an authority, not because he's an authority on the matters, but because Christ is the authority. But Paul isn't alone as a gospel voice in this letter. He includes his companion, Timothy, another faithful servant, his protege, right? And, and if, again, if you're familiar with the book of Ephesus, Timothy is the pastor in the church in Ephesus. So not only do we have a letter written by Paul to be read by Timothy to the church, but we also have First and Second Timothy, Letters written by Paul to his friend and companion, his, his little protege, the man he took under his arm, and he raised up. He says, Timothy is here with me too. And essentially what he's saying is, Timothy is in agreement with what I'm writing. Timothy would confirm these things alongside me. He is a co-laborer in the gospel. Timothy is with Paul in Rome. And so... By being included in this introduction, in this greeting, one would assume that whatever Paul would write to the Colossians, should they interact in some way down the road with Timothy, he's in agreement with what Paul is teaching them, right? And that that would be similar to if, um, you know, a statement was made from the pulpit here and you interacted with one of the other members of the leadership team who was included as being in agreement with the leadership team here, they would speak of the same. They would have the same opinion. They would be of agreement with the position that was publicly declared on behalf of the leadership team, right? And so it's, there's an authority, uh, a level of authority there as well. And the conversation of Paul as an authority on gospel matters, this sets the tone for what's going to follow in his letter, right? And it's interesting, when you think about the greetings that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi in the book of Philippians, and to a man named Philemon, his greeting wasn't about uh, authority per se, it was really more written from a perspective of humility, in Philippians and Philemon, but in Ephesians and Colossians, he's writing more as, a, as an authoritative matter. Not that Paul desires to abuse authority or to receive some kind of clout simply because he's an authority. But again, if Paul is to speak into the matters the Colossians are dealing with, they must view him uh, as an authority, even if they had never met him. John Stott once said this, He said, the authority by which the Christian leader leads is not power, but love, not force, but example, not coercion, but reason, persuasion. Leaders have power, but power is safe only in the hands of those who humble themselves to serve. Apart from Christ, there is probably no person who has demonstrated a greater example of godly authority than Paul. He led not out of a position of domineering uh, leadership, demonstrative, authoritative. It wasn't his leadership style at all. This quote by Stott perfectly encapsulates the way in which the Apostle Paul would lead. I mean, again, figure with me that he's humbled himself to the point of being where? He's in prison. He's under chains in Rome. By the way, he's been in prison more than once. 
2 Corinthians 12, I believe it is, 11 or 12, we read all about all that Paul suffered for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's literally under his authority as a leader has humbled himself to being imprisoned for the gospel. Christ has worked mightily in the life of the apostle. And Christ is his authority and as such has called him to speak as an authority for Christ. This is Paul's focus upon Christ's work in his life. This is what he's done in my life, Colossae. And now I want to talk about what he's done in yours. He shifts his focus from his life to their life. His focus isn't just about uh, the work of Christ, but also to the lives that Christ has changed there at the church in Colossae. And his focus, if you will, of Christ and, and the work of Christ in their lives centers around two things. Who he has made them and what he offers them by way of who he's made them. So we see first, who has he made them? Well, we see here, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Again, this would include the sisters, brothers and sisters, the faithful, the saints, and the faithful. These descriptors of Paul, of these people in Colossae, denotes that they are people who have been set apart by God. They've been set apart, chosen, called by God for a specific purpose. And it's interesting because most often we see Paul, when he speaks to faithful, it's regarded to Christ. When, when he speaks to the churches, he speaks to their faithfulness, right? But he doesn't do that with the church at Colossae. He speaks to the fact that they are faithful people. So he writes to them acknowledging that they're set apart and that they're faithful to what they've been called to in Christ. You might be tempted to just kind of read over that, right? It says in Christ, at Colossae. Actually, in our original languages, it would say in Christ, in Colossae, but our English translations have kind of cleaned it up a little bit. But he speaks to the reality of them being in Christ, I want you to understand something. As quickly as we can gloss over this, we have to be careful because we don't want to. There is tremendous significance to the reality of being saints and faithful tied to the fact that they are in Christ. This might seem insignificant, but it's not because this speaks to the union, okay, or the relationship that exists between Christ and those who are his, Being in union or in relationship with Christ is the point. And this matters because, and I'll be honest with you, I think this is where a lot gets lost in translation today. When we consider the church and and, and relationship with Christ, because when a person is in union with Christ, they do not simply experience behavior modification where they follow some sort of religious views or ideal. The ESV commentary says it this way. I love it. They, they literally call it a spiritual transformation. To be in union with Jesus is not just some claim to say, I've been saved, I'm good. 
Those who operate and live under the umbrella of I'm saved, I'm good, will never be regarded as faithful. Paul would not write and commend a church in Colossae that was faithfully living what they knew and understood as faithful if they were living unfaithfully. And so when he speaks to the fact that these Colossian believers are in relationship or are in union with Jesus, he's speaking to the reality that their lives have been transformed. You remember where we started? There is no area of the life of a believer that is untouched by the gospel. I had somebody send me something this past week, and it was, it was some guy talking on a podcast. It was just this really short clip, but it was really quite interesting because the guy, I laughed, and it was, I think when it was sent to me, it was meant to be humorous. It's sad, but it was humorous. The guy on the podcast said, we got all kinds of Christians or professing Christians out here running around wearing the helmet of salvation and nothing else. I thought, man, isn't that true? Isn't that so true, Right? That's not union with Jesus. Running around claiming salvation in Christ while living with disregard of that salvation in Christ, that's not union with Jesus at all. And Paul is commending the church because they're not abusing the salvation that they've been given in Jesus. But they're confused. They're feeling this outside pressure. Nobody's accusing them of making a mockery of the gospel or, or, or dealing or viewing it in a lighthearted manner. He's literally writing to say, you are doing well. You are living out this union that you have with Jesus. You've been spiritually transformed. And he's going to unpack it more in chapters 2 and 3. But he's writing to the fact that they're faithful and says, but let's, let's, let's drown out some of these exterior noises. Let's set our sights and our focus on the things that, that, you know, listen, I want you to understand something. When you trust Christ, you're not expected to know everything. You don't automatically know everything. You learn, right? But I want you to understand too, one of the markers of genuine salvation is a desire to learn God's word and to know God by way of it. That your union with Jesus would be strengthened. That your transformation would be more evident. So Paul, he commends them for this. You live, you're living lives, man, that are faithful. That look like they've been impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll get to that later in chapters 2 and 3. But for now, Paul focuses on what these people in Colossae have become because of their union with Christ. They are saints and they are faithful. And not only has Christ made them different as part of this union, but he offers them his grace and his peace. Here's who they are. Here's what Christ offers Grace and peace from God. This is a typical expression from, uh, or of one of God's people to someone else or a group of people. Paul simply extends the favor of God to them. God's favor is freely given by God. Okay? This favor, this grace comes from him. It's experienced in their salvation. Okay? You are saved by grace through faith. But God continues to bestow his grace upon those who are genuinely saved that they might continue to experience his grace, that they might continue to live out the salvation that they have been given for his glory. 
And Paul's letter that is rich with theology begins with this same theology. God is at work in the believers' lives in Colossae. And God being at work has implications. Reality, again, it's not... It is magnificent, but it doesn't seem magnificent when we just read an opening greeting. God has done great things and was still at work in his people in Colossae 2,000 years ago. Almost 2,000 years ago. In a nutshell, that's what Paul is writing in his greeting. God is at work in you. He has been at work, and he will continue to be at work. And again, this is one of those times where you don't want to be cheesy and you don't want to be cliché. But God is still at work in the church today. So many folks in churches just like ours literally live their lives like God doesn't exist. Live with no regard whatsoever to the claim of the salvation that we say we have and the implications of God's continued grace on our lives in light of that. God is still at work today. God has given in Christ all that believers need to live godly lives. That was true in Colossae, and that's true today. God is still calling people to himself, and when he does, he is equipping those people for godly lives. And over the course of the next several weeks, I want to build upon this introduction. But for today, I want to focus. I want, I want to challenge you and I to focus upon what Christ has done. And I don't mean... I have to be careful because sometimes when I talk, I don't ever want to seem facetious when I talk about gospel things. But I want to level with us. We are masters of knowing the right phrases and the right quotes. And we are masters at saying, well, I'm going to focus on the fact that Jesus died on the cross for my sin." I'm not trying to be facetious because that would be true. But I want to ask you a question. So what? And not like so what it doesn't matter. So what? What bearing does that have on your life? That's what we're talking about when we say, may we be people who would focus. Focus upon what Christ has done. Think back upon your life. I was just short of my 21st birthday when I was saved by Christ. And it is not hard for me to imagine what my life might look like had Christ not saved me just short of my 21st birthday. It's not hard for me to focus upon the grace of God in my life and sparing me from a life of things that, listen, when you ain't interested in Jesus and you're not following Jesus, you don't always make the best choices. And it's not difficult to imagine. I mean, again, I don't want to be... Many of you know, if you don't, I'll tell you, I have an older brother who just celebrated his 40th birthday in December in a level four security prison in the state of Michigan. And I remember one time having a conversation with my dad and we were talking and we went through a lot as a family and then my ups and downs and all kind of crazy stuff. My brother, um, you, you, we're closer now than we've ever been. That's kind of funny, isn't it? And, um, but it was, it was rough growing up in my home and my brother was a handful, um, but I still remember one time having a conversation with my dad, and this has been within the last probably five or six years we were here, as a matter of fact. Um, but I remember having this conversation with my dad, and I said, Dad, 
Do you know what the difference between you, me, and John is? John's my brother. I said, the grace of God. Because the grace of God is the only reason I'm not incarcerated. For me to stand up here and think that I was beyond making the choices that he made, which I'll flat out tell you, nobody proved he did, but he couldn't prove he didn't. Right? And then he got 25 to 76. Because he couldn't prove he didn't do what he was accused of. And the choices that he made, many of us probably make choices that look a lot like it. Here's the only reason I say that. I don't want to minimize my brother. I don't want to put my brother down. That's, that's not my point at all. But what I'm saying is the grace of God, when I focus upon what God has done just working in my life, it is not hard for me to imagine that I very easily could be right where my brother is. When we talk about focusing upon Christ and what Christ has done, brothers and sisters, we must move past Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I'm not minimizing that reality because it's our only claim to hope. But if that's the ultimate expression of the focus that you have of Jesus and what he's done in your life, then you're falling far short of what he's actually accomplishing in your life if you're in Christ. And so it's my prayer that as we work through Colossians, we will strive to focus, to focus upon. And it it is almost cliche, right? It's January 1st. It's a new year. It's a new time to refocus and re... I'm not interested in any of that nonsense. Because you know what happens to 99% of New Year's resolutions? They're toast by January 3rd. And I'm not, I'm not encouraging any of us to sit here today and think great thoughts about Jesus and two days from now not give a hoot. But Paul, writing to the church at Colossae, says, you are in union with God because of Christ. The wretched sinner that you are, you are brought into a right relationship with the sovereign, creating, sustaining God of the universe. Brothers and sisters, that has to have ramifications upon our lives. So may we, like Paul, strive to focus. We live in a world with a lot of noise, a lot of distractions. Everybody has an idea. Everybody has a thought to share. Everybody has an opinion. Social media. I'm not calling for New Year's resolutions to do less social media. But may we drown out some of that noise. May we focus. We talk about, we opened our service this morning talking about reading our Bibles. And I'm guilty of this, okay? I'm not saying this as though get up to my speed. So many of us say, well, it's just hard to find time. It's hard to find time to read those 14 verses of Matthew 12. It's hard to find time. What does the screen time look like on your phone? How much time, let's just be honest for a second. How much time do you spend on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, all of these other social media platforms? I'm sure there's new ones by now I'm not even naming. We don't, we don't have time because we're not focused. 
There's a lot of noise. And my prayer is that not just because it's January 1st, it would be the same if it was July 17th, is that we would strive to keep our focus. For some of us, that's going to mean reestablishing a focus, right? So may we focus, as Paul did, upon Christ, upon what he's accomplished, and what the ramifications of that are in our lives.